0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com.
1: Hi, this is your host, Brian James. Before we get to today's podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about some new benefits for Medicine Path Patreon subscribers. We now have stickers and t shirts for patrons at the $10 and $30 tiers. That's right, folks, the Medicine Path now has merch. The t shirt design is based on the cover of one of my favorite Black Sabbath albums, Masters of Reality. And the text on the shirt reads Yoga and Meditation Master Your Reality. Not many people know this, but when I was about 8 years old, the first record I ever bought was a Greatest Hits compilation of Black Sabbath tunes. I became completely obsessed with this record, and from then on, my family nickname was Ozzy. Don't tell anyone. This t-shirt pays homage to that great working-class hippie metal band and to my love of yoga. To me, the pairing makes total sense because the most mental thing you can do is master your reality by getting your mind, body, and soul in the state of perfect balance and harmony that is yoga. So you can check out this and the many other benefits of becoming a Medicine Path patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Thanks to all my loyal patrons. I really could not do this without your support. And thank you for listening. Without you, there'd really be no reason to do this at all. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Medicine Path podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. It's my great pleasure today to be sitting with uh, Jim Hollis. Jim is a Jungian analyst who taught humanities for 26 years in various colleges and universities before retraining as an analyst at the Jung Institute of Zurich, Switzerland. And he's presently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, D.C., James has written a total of 16 books, including Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times, Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves, and The Upcoming Prisms, Reflections on This Journey We Call Life, which is coming out on February 15th, 2021. Dr. Hollis, Jim, thank -hmm. you so so much for uh, speaking with us today.
2: Pleasure to be with you, Brian. I first
1: became aware of your work a few years ago in my ongoing exploration of depth psychology. And I have to say, you've been a very helpful guide in giving me a better understanding of the work of Carl Jung. And through that, gaining a better understanding of myself and the journey that I've been on. So I want to begin just by thanking you for all of the work that you've done over the years. I think it's so valuable.
2: Well, thank you, Russ. It's a privilege. And frankly, it's been meaningful for me as well. I uh, encountered Jung as a college student. It didn't make much sense to me. And at midlife, when I began to look at the world somewhat differently, um, I went into Jungian analysis and Jungian work, and it uh, turned my life in a different direction. And I've spent the second half of my life saying to myself, if this is useful to you, why not share it with other people? And that's how these books and classes and so forth have uh, come out through the years. So I'm, I'm grateful if it's been meaningful to you and I hope to others as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a couple of friends of mine who uh, we consider ourselves students of your work and we often have conversations about your work and recommend books to each other as we find them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's such a pleasure to be able to speak with you, and it's an honor. Um, I consider you a real elder in this world, and you've, uh, you've helped make a lot of Jung's somewhat complex ideas more understandable for myself and I know a lot of other people, so that's very valuable. Thank you. In the preface of your recent book, Living Between Worlds, you point out that we're in a time of great change. It's a kind of liminal space between the ending of one age and the beginning of a new one. In your opinion, what is the world that we've left behind or the one that we're leaving behind?
2: Well, let me just point out, first of all, um, a lot of people thought that book was written in reaction to the COVID crisis. It was actually finished a good two years ago, but it took time to get through the publishing process. And um, the reason being, I was certainly aware that we're always living between what was and what is not yet, to be sure. And sometimes these are moments of crisis on the personal level. Sometimes they are cultural shifts and changes. So, you know, we've been living through, to put it as succinctly as I can, what's happened over the last 200 years has been what you might call the death of certainties. That uh, people, you know, a century ago, my parents, your grandparents perhaps, uh, people um, back as far back as say 1800 had reason to believe that there were fixed institutions that were the repositories of wisdom and, and goodwill and good intentions and so forth. And there were sort of fixed categories of being like, What it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a woman, uh, racial categories, uh, ethnic categories, ethical uh, certainties, and so forth. And what's been happening over the last couple of hundred years is a sort of the deconstruction of the presumed authority of those categories. The the loss of those, quote, quote, certainties that gave people marching orders and fixed belief systems to count upon has, has eroded by and large. And, and um, while that's good, because that's freeing human beings up to be who they are, for many people, it's experienced as, as a sort of disorienting kind of uh, encounter with, with the great unknown. The human ego, unfortunately, doesn't handle ambiguity very, very well. It doesn't handle, um, you know, ambivalence very well. And so that's why there is within us a certain progressive energy at all times that wants to grow and develop. And there's a part of us that's very regressive. We prefer the known, the certain. There's that tendency to sort of go back to the way things were. And of course, the way things were, were very constrictive if we look at them. You might look back from the standpoint of our present moment and say, you know, the world that was there, was the world that privileged certain races. The world was there, privileged certain people of of certain genders, a world that was privileging um, economic uh, distinctions in in profound ways that did a lot of damage to the human soul at that time. And, And the desire to go back to that certainty is perhaps psychologically understandable, but it's ethically unacceptable because it would be to ratify in a certain way all of those constrictions received from the past. Now, Jung pointed out, he said, to be a modern is not just to be alive and breathing at this hour. He said, it's to understand that the task of meaning as generally speaking, moved from the tribe or from the sacred institutions to the shoulders of the individual. And while that's an enormous sort of shift of psycho and social and spiritual authority, it's an invitation to depth, invitation to the personal dignity of your journey. It's an invitation to freedom, frankly. And yet it's terrifying, which is why so often you find in people's lives or in institutional lives, this, this regressive tendency to say, let me go back to what worked, You know, give me the old time religion, make, a, uh, you know, make America number one again, those kinds of things. That are, are, in a sense, slogans for ratifying the sort of limitations of the past. But we do so because there's a part of many people, at least, where that prevails, which is, an, again, a reaction to the anxiety of openness, the anxiety of ambiguity, mm-hmm. the anxiety of a certain kind of freedom.
1: Yeah, the... Uh... The anxiety of being in a transitional period, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You say in the preface to that book, in a quote, I think we may be not on the brink of the new age, but teetering at the edge of new barbarisms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, reading that now, I can't help but think of the photo of the young man dressed in horns, taking over the Washington Capitol. Mm -hmm. And the irony there is that he promotes himself as a kind of new age spiritual warrior. So what do you think is going on there?
2: Well, again, I can't speak of his individual psychological state. I don't know him, of course, but there, there was an extraordinarily um, violent reaction to the anxiety he was talking about. In other words, no one wants to stop and pay attention to or be present with their own anxiety. We want Five easy steps to get rid of it. We want a pill to take care of that, or we want to reinstitute some other kind of certainty. And so what you were seeing there was enormous anxiety expressing itself as violence. You only get violent when you feel profoundly threatened. And what was the threat of an orderly transition of power? What was the threat of, of having a successful election in our country? After all, the system worked the way it was supposed to work. And 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 yet again, what it embraced was social change, uh, racial changes in this country, socioeconomic changes, and so forth. This is not to say there aren't real problems out there. A lot of people are economically gravely distressed even before the virus, and I have deepest sympathy for that. And and so, in the face of uncertainty, there's again that tendency frequently to regress, to go back to the good old days. Even when a sober assessment says, you know, coal is not coming back, it's not the future. Fossil fuels are are, are dated in, in there. We can't afford them that much longer because our planet can't take it anymore. Um, manufacturing as we knew it has pretty much fled our shores. It's not particularly coming back. That doesn't mean there can't be some significant shifts and new agendas of healthcare, education, goods and services, and of course, the uh, you know the green power system, which they think in the long run will provide even more jobs. But it's hard to make that transition. It's, it's easy to talk about it. But if you're the person going through losing his job and not knowing where he's gonna get next month's rent, you can understand why there's an inner sense of panic and, and so forth. So what we were seeing there was people fed a certain narrative. A narrative which I happen to believe was wholly false but a certain narrative that would account for why they're feeling so anxious rather than a kind of sober assessment of the actual causes and changes that are going on and they're going to go on regardless we're not going back to the past that's all there is to it but in the face of that then the only rational or sane thing to do is how can I uh, adapt and, and cope with the, the future and, and learn what I need to learn to move forward? I'm 80 years old. I'm not necessarily interested in learning new things myself. I feel a stranger to the computer era. And yet here we are using this instrument to communicate. And how wonderful an opportunity it is for us to have a conversation with potentially thousands of people out there. I'm grateful for this. But I it was not a natural transition. You You have to. Throw yourself into those transitions and and, and, and in a sense, go with change. The only thing that we can say about nature is it's in constant change, whether it's the world out there around us, the physical world, or, or the world inside of us that's constantly changing.
1: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the panic that can arise in times like this. And in the first chapter of the book, you talk about the connection between panic and the old nature god, Pan, Mm -hmm. And there's also clearly a resonance with the word pandemic, which is, of course, something Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. everyone Mm -hmm. is dealing with right now. Can you share a little on how you feel uh, pan is connected to what we're currently going through? Is this a resurgence of the the old gods? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, the reason I mentioned that was just to give one of many examples we can give in history where the old order or operative metaphor dissolves, where your sense of what's running the show, uh, what are the invisible forces that are at work that are constructing and sustaining our world? So a little over 2,000 years ago, I mentioned in the book, um, a terrible rumor uh, circled the states around the Mediterranean, and it produced panic. And the rumor was that Pan had died. Now, I realize this hasn't brought grave distress to you or to me per se, but there was a time in which it produced enormous cultural confusion. Because Pan, we think of this little guy who's half goat, half human. He represented, in a sense, the ancient view of the world tied to the earth, tied to agriculture, tied to the instinctual life that was being replaced by the emergent city-states of Egypt and and. Uh, Um, uh, Greece and Rome and and so forth and others, and and represented in a psychosocial spiritual shift of the locus of authority from the grounding in nature to the sort of creation of a world of artificials. For example, so much of our life is given to pursuing economic goals. And economics is a wholly invented set of constructs. People living in nature have no interest in economics. You know, they're in their natural environment, living, you know, the struggles of daily life. But you, you take a person out of that and say your goal is to make money or to be successful or to do this or that, and you realize your whole, your whole sense of yourself has to be twer- tor- uh, sort of twisted and torqued around to fit into this this world. So whenever the roadmap dissolves or whenever the core metaphor uh, erodes it puts you into a new forest where your map doesn't apply and that causes panic so panic is that feeling is i don't know where i am i don't know where i'm going and that happens to us frequently in cultures and it's been happening progressively in the western world particularly and partly the eastern world too uh, over the last two centuries but now with increased rapidity
1: Mm. Yeah. Wasn't it about 130 years ago that Nietzsche proclaimed God is dead? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and he wasn't, strange enough, he wasn't making a metaphysical statement. He wasn't making a theological statement. Right. He was making a psychological statement. He was saying, I see people maybe going through the, he was in Basel, Switzerland at the time. I see people going through the motions, but I don't see this quickening their souls. I don't see this moving them in some deep and profound way. This is routinized behavior. It's institutionalized behavior, and unfortunately, you know, every institution is founded to serve some ostensibly noble purpose to pass something on a value, but in time, it becomes quote institutionalized. Mm-hmm. You know, the famous uh, Groucho Marx uh, joke where he said. You know, marriage is a great institution, but who wants to be institutionalized, you know? And, you know, if, after a while, it starts serving its own self-maintenance as its chief value. And and, and it often w- rewards its elders in one way or the other, or its priesthood, or its uh, CEO class or whatever, their golden parachutes. But, he, you know, in, in the long run, he was saying, does this institution, as I see it, and these practices as I see them, um, move and deepen the person's journey? Does it call upon them for their own you know, best response to this uh, challenge of living? And for him, the answer was clearly no. And and that's really what he meant.
1: Mm. Wasn't it Kant that said um, form without function is empty? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the sense that I get is that, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian religions maybe aren't working for as many people as they used to. And I wonder, like, do you think people's willingness to ascribe to and defend to the death, in some cases, a political or cultural ideology is a kind of misdirected attempt to fill the void left by the religions sure. that are no longer relevant or functional?
2: Well, absolutely. Sure, sure. In other words, our our first move is to reconstitute the thing that we think worked for us before. Whether it did or not is another question, but if it worked before, why would I not repeat it? That's how, on a very personal level, we dig a hole for ourselves by going back to the same old behaviors. I have a a, a colleague, years ago, who was a member of AA, and he said in his group, there was a saying they had that was very telling to me. He said, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. I love that sentence. This isn't working for me, but I do it very well. I said, That's yeah. good for all of us, you know, because we all get locked into certain kinds of patterns that we've just routinized to the point that they're reflexive, but they sort of dig our hole deeper and deeper. So the only portion of the religious spectrum in the West, especially in the United States, that has grown since World War II is, is the religious right. Because it's again a regressive movement to reconstitute an old authority. Black and white values, clear definitions, statement of who the good people are, what the who the bad people are? I mean, you get your marketing orders pretty clearly. What that does is answer these vexing questions for you. And there's a certain comfort Mm -hmm. for that. The problem is: does it really resonate in your soul? Does it really, really help you deepen your journey, and even better, find your journey compared to everybody else around you. So there's there's a fundamentalist in everyone. I, I'm not criticizing fundamentalism, I'm just saying there's a part of us, in all of us, given the vicissitudes of the world around us, when challenged, is a part of us that would really like to reconstitute the old way of thinking, our old behaviors, our, our own belief systems, because they provided marching orders. They provided answers. They provided a a promise of security, even if it never was fulfilled, particularly. Mm -hmm. So again, the, the great threat, ironically, is freedom. The great threat is where the world says to you, well, Brian, figure it out yourself. You have a journey that you have to take. It's unlike anyone else's, you know, Be thoughtful about your choices and their impact on other people. You know, we're not indulging in narcissism here or self-indulgence. We're saying live your journey in community and relationship, but live your journey. And if you don't, you're violating something that was set in motion by your birth. And every time through fear or or outer influence, uh, we abrogate that, shut it down. Uh, we're, we're violating something profoundly important in this journey. It's kind of like a big mosaic. The mosaic itself is composed of all of these tiny chips. And I am about one chip in the vast mosaic of being. But if I take that away, I've diminished the whole in some way, which is why it's not about me. It's about what can I bring to this journey that is is you know a unique expression of, of being in this world. That's not selfishness. That's actually a summons to duty. You know, you have a duty to become what you you know are meant to become. Uh, first half of life, the agenda is between you and the world. What do my parents want from me? What do my playmates want from me? What does the teacher want from me? What does the employer want from me? My partner, etc. It's a social axis. The second half of life, loosely speaking, is a spiritual uh, agenda. In other words, well, so why am I here really? Am I here just to reproduce a species or be an an economic uh, animal? Um, Am I to be a taxpayer, a functionary? I mean, why am I here? What are my real values? What truly matters for me? And and more importantly, rather than what does the world want of me, it's the question I think is, What wants to enter the world through me, which is a different matter? You see, for the last, you know, many decades here, I've been, as you said, teaching and writing. Well, why? Because for whatever reason, the gods, so to speak, in a sense, made me that way. They're saying this is how you will bring something to the world. It's important for you personally, but it's something you can share and if I say, it's sort of like saying if a child has a music talent or an art talent or an athletic talent and the circumstances of their family or their socioeconomic circumstances or their racial circumstances sort of say, but you can't do that, that's a damage to the soul. I mean, that's 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 the worst thing that can happen to a person. And that's not about me. That's about me in the, res- in, in, in the way responding to vocation. See, vocation is not job. Voc, voc, vocal, vocatus in Latin is calling. What am I called to do and be as a person? That's that's the question. And, you know, there are all kinds of socialized roles. There are all kinds of scripts waiting for me out there. But if if they don't accord in some way with my inner reality, the topography of my own soul, and even if I do them well and I'm rewarded for it, It'll never be my life. And something else inside will always feel amiss. Something inside will always feel um, in, insufficient or unsatisfying. And yet, if you serve your vocation, you're supported by something within you. Your your, your psyche responds. It supports you by carrying you through difficult times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things um, that you talk about in the book that I was happy to hear you talk about was the question of um, personal authority um, mm-hmm. and our tendency to look to external authorities for guidance. And you start the chapter with a, a great, somewhat provocative quote from Rilke. It says says, um, nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And this is something that I'm always trying to put back on the students and the clients that I work with. But um, I find that it can be a difficult thing for someone to trust their inner guidance. Mm -hmm. Like we can experience so many conflicting voices in ourselves and in the culture and our family. So how do you suggest people learn to listen to and trust their intuitions Mm -hmm. and instincts?
2: Well, we all did as children. But of course, when you're a child, you're tiny, powerless, vulnerable. And you have to meet the demands of the environment around you. It's a rare experience in this journey where people really have an environment which supports that inner authority in the child. It's more about how do you fit in, how do how do you win the approval of your teacher or your parents or whatever. And so necessarily, we trade bits and pieces of that received authority, which is again your instinctual truth. We trade it away. Every day a little bit. Uh Wordsworth, way back in 1802, was writing about how every day the child coming in, trailing clouds of glory, he said, um, is is you know being sort of burnished away. And he said it by by adolescence, it's faded into the light of common clay. It's like you've you've lost that connection to yourself. And you you you're either serving what people expect from you or you're running from them. Either way, you're in response to them. Um, And so that's why the second half of life, the single biggest project is not figuring out what's in your 401k or how to pay off the mortgage. It's, how do I recover my personal authority? Because you're right, inside of each of us, it's busier than O'Hare at Rush Hour or Hartsfield Jackson. There's a traffic constantly coming in, a lot of voices. It's made worse by the modern world with this cacophony of demands. Our emails keep clicking constantly around the clock <coughs> Excuse me. and inside there are all kinds of received voices as well that we think at times are ours. So the second half of life is an ongoing discipline or requires a discipline of sorting and sifting which voices come from my own depths, from my own soul which are received voices from my, my parents my family of origin which are the ones that are coming from the outer world they're not all right or wrong it's just that i have to be able to to sort through that make some choices because otherwise i'm i'm living simply responsively to the most the, to the noisiest mode, voice that comes my way and and then working at that throughout the rest of your life comes the second task which is the courage to live it. If I find that I'm in a relationship that no longer is resonant inside, and I wanna come back to that word resonance in a moment, or if my career, which was maybe once wonderful, but I've I've been there, done that, outlived that, something else is calling for me, then I have to have the courage to face those very difficult decisions. If I don't, something in me dies. And something knows about that. Something knows, and it will always show up symptomatically. Now, I think one of the key elements in sorting through is this principle of resonance, resonance, resounding. If something is right for me, then it resounds. It it resonates for me. I can't transfer that to somebody. Um, you know, or somebody can't give it to me even if they mean well. That's what, in, that's what Nietzsche again meant. People will pass on what they think of, is of value to their children, but their children's journey is a different journey. And the, the, the resonance is the way our own psyche responds to the world in which we find ourselves. And in my profession of deaf psychology or psychoanalysis, um, we we have to respect, even welcome psychopathology. Well, I know that sounds crazy, but because any of us, when we don't feel good, we want to sort of get rid of that feeling as quickly as possible. But in the perspectives of depth psychology, we we say instead, how quickly do not how quickly do I get rid of this, or how do I medicate that, or whatever. We have to ask the question: Why has this come? What is this asking of me? To be explicit, at I was my early life, I was an academic. And I valued that, I enjoyed that. But at midlife, I hit a serious depression. Sent me to my first hour of therapy, not with the expectation that this is going to introduce to me a different agenda for the second half of life. Quite the contrary, I want to just get back to the life I knew as quickly as possible. But I began to realize at that moment that this depression. Is the autonomous withdrawal of approval and support by my own psyche to the places where I'm investing my precious energies. So we'd have to say then, all right, now it's time for me to ask another question, which wouldn't occur to us otherwise. If my management system, you know, if the executive floor upstairs is not doing such a great job, what is it that the psyche would want from me? And we're not used to asking that kind of question. And th- often there's no immediate answer. Sometimes you know because you know. Jung said once most people came to him knowing somewhere deep within them what they needed to, to do with their life. But they were maybe afraid of knowing what they knew. Yeah. But you have to keep asking that question till that other emerges. And it will emerge. Mm-hmm. If you ask a question of great importance... Um, and you sit with it, the answer always comes to you. I can say to you with complete conviction what I wouldn't have known in the past if I have to work on an issue, a problem, significant choice, even something like how do I start this book or how do I undertake that or how should I look at that? I, I metaphorically put it inside, and I have this theory, not to be taken literally, of a whole bunch of little people down there that are working on this 24 hours, seven days a week, Mm-hmm. they always get back to me. <laughs> it, it won't be on my schedule. I'd like to have a report by this afternoon on my desk, but they'll get back to me two days from now with a dream. Or four or five weeks from now, I'll wake at three o'clock with clarity. It's there. It's like I know what's right. Even some books have started that way, such as Swamplands of the Soul. It's a book that deals with the unpleasant places we have to go in life, like depression and loss and betrayal and so forth. and I woke up one morning and I had just been having this paragraph that, you know, we'd all like to think we can sort of get to a point in our life where the problems are behind us. We walk into this sunlit meadow and it's free of conflict and free of worry and and, and so on. But, you know, that's delusional. (laughs) That time never really arrives. Life is difficult and you have to deal with it. And, And so, you know, my psyche had been working on that all the time. And the problem is all of us got separated from that source of insight. And and again, this is not to license self-indulgence or narcissism. This is an encounter with one's own mystery, which in the end is humbling because our deepest nature is not interested in our comfort. I have to tell you that it's interested in meaning it's if, if the life you're living is not experienced as meaningful by your psyche, there's going to be psychopathology all around, right? It's going to show up in your children. It's going to show up in your self-medication. It's going to show up in those moments of, of anger. It's going to show up in troubling dreams. It, it's always going to leak out somewhere. And my work as a deaf psychologist is to pay attention to these things. Pay attention to the leaks, if you will, and say, "What? let's go back to where this offense is occurring to your own soul. When I use the word soul, I'm, I'm using it in a just as a literal translation, of the Greek word psyche, that which is most deeply who we are. We're behaviors, we're cognitive responses. We are bodies with pharmacological responses. But underneath all of that, put all that together and you don't have the person. There's some essence that we call the soul, and it's unique to Brian as it is unique to me and to each person witnessing this. The question is, can I undertake a dialogue with that? Because if I don't, it's gonna have to take the initiative and, and impose a dialogue with me. And that's partly what I learned at midlife.
1: Yeah. In the book too, you also offer uh, a little guidance around how mm-hmm. to start to listen to the soul. Sure. And mm-hmm. so you mentioned a few things and um, one of them is like to observe when energy is coming through. Sure. Um, another thing was like the feeling function. Mm-hmm. Could you yep. just talk a little bit about those indicators sure. when, you know, when we mm-hmm. are listening?
2: Sure. Let me just mention a kind of silly example, but one that's stuck in my mind. Many, many years ago, I took our dog Shadrach to have some <laughs> surgery. And he was a, a big Lassa who ran our family. And uh, I said to the surgeon when I went to to get him, I said, well, when can I let him get up and walk around? And he looked at me like, what's wrong with you? He says, he's a dog. He knows. In other words, he knew what was right for him. Sure enough, he laid around for a couple of days and he got up and started walking around. I thought, he knows. Mm -hmm. We are equipped with elemental systems that are overridden in our reporting to the world around us, one of which is the energy system. We can mobilize our energy. Thank goodness. You need to do that to get up at two in the morning and feed that crying baby, or you need to step out of the way of that speeding car or whatever. But if you keep mobilizing your energy in the wrong direction, it's going to lead to boredom, uh, depression, self-medication, burnout, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, when you're doing what's right for you, the energy's there. The flow is there as they talk about it. The energy supports you and and it causes you to put up with all kinds of conflict and suffering because it, it matters to your own soul the feeling function. Uh, we don't choose our feelings. Feelings are autonomous, qualitative analyses of what's happening in our life that happen autonomously. Afterwards, it comes to consciousness. I can dismiss them, disown them, project them onto others, anesthetize them, whatever. But I, 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 if I pay attention to it, in other words, I can be doing all the right things that my executive core up here thinks is right. Um, but underneath, it never feels right. And when you're doing what's right for you, the feeling is there. Thirdly, we have dreams. Um, we average six dreams a night, as sleep research tells us. Everybody's going to say, oh, I don't dream that much. Or, I don't remember my dreams. Well, that may be true, but we are still dreaming. <laughs> And if you stop and pay attention to dreams over time, you begin to realize there's some other center inside of me, some other locus of knowing that has a perspective that's larger than my conscious perspective is critiquing my life has its own agenda and amazingly is seeking to communicate with me. And wouldn't it make sense once in a while to sort of pay attention to that and sort of dialogue with that. Now, Sleep research tells us, I'm, I'm 80, and they say by the time we're 80, we'll have spent six years of our life dreaming. Think of that, six years out of 80 years in the dream state, and most time people don't remember. Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, you know, nature doesn't waste energy, so it's serving purposes. And one of its purposes, I think, is to metabolize the massive stimuli that come at us in any 24 hours, and if if we are not allowed to do that, we fear feel unrested, you know, irritable, restless, etc. But in addition, it it makes a qualitative response to our life. And that's significant. So I, I think the deep psyche has two agendas. The first is our continued growth and, and development, because if we're not growing and developing, then there's something in us that's already dying. And secondly, self-healing. It's seeking the restoration of some homeostasis within us. It's seeking our, our inner balance when the world around us is unbalanced. And also is this issue of meaning. If something means something, really means something to you, it's worth your sacrifice. It's worth the cost you pay. Um, many times people have had to sacrifice profoundly or things that mattered and and even the people we would value in history didn't have easy lives or comfortable lives. We wouldn't want to trade with their lives, but because something was meaningful, they lived it, they embodied it, they stuck it out, they they fought their way through it. And and that's why they are exemplars of of the meaning of this this journey. I can't manufacture meaning. The world can say if you buy this house, marry this person, drive this car, your life is going to be rich and meaningful. Well, if that worked, we'd have plenty of evidence to see it all around us. So well, usually it it's sold
1: usually it's just sold as happiness. It's not they don't usually talk about rich and meaningful unfortunately, but it's That's usually right. just selling happiness, right?
2: That's right. That's right. Well, what we need, are little happiness stands every block, and you can just pop in there and get, buy some more happiness because, you know, I, I'm, I'm known for saying happiness is not that important, but meaning is everything. Yeah. Because the goal of life, as I was just saying, many of the people that we would most value in our lives or in history um, weren't happy, but they had meaningful journeys, and, and people say, well, what's wrong with happiness? Well, nothing's wrong with it. I'm not against happiness. Happiness is a momentary experience of being in right relationship with your own psyche at that moment. But it's transient. You know, if you're thirsty, you'd be happy with a glass of fresh water. You know, too much water, you drown. It's like so much is transitory and contextual. And if I'm happy at any given moment, if I can build myself an island where I'm happy, that means I have to shut off the fact that just down the block is a hospital with people suffering. And over in this direction, there are people suffering in, in enormous injustices. So am I going to isolate myself from the real world as it is to buy some sort of phantasmal happiness? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, happiness means you you you're doing something that you feel is mean that is meaningful to you it resonates for you and from time to time it makes you very happy you know like writing a book writing is not easy people think it's very easy it's not easy i write at the end of a long work day Mm -hmm. and when i'm tired i like to turn on the television and watch the news or a ball game or something like that no there's something in me that is wanting expression you know, I don't do it for money. There's not that much money in it. You know, it's, it's like this wants expression through you. So when I do that, I find myself experiencing a happiness that comes out of that, even though it's, I would say, hard labor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess one of the things that's difficult for people when we present this idea of listening to your inner guidance is it can be hard for them to make a discernment. So you talked about how the soul will be critiquing our life and our actions. Mm-hmm. How do we separate that out from an inner critic voice that may have its origins in our childhood? Mm-hmm. How do we know who we're talking to in any given moment?
2: That's a, that's a profound question. And there again is discernment. That's an old-fashioned word but we need to bring it back into play again. Discernment means sorting and sifting, sorting and sifting. And there is no one who doesn't have internal voices of denigration that are working. And sometimes they are so powerful, they dominate a person's life and they keep sabotaging themselves or serving something that um, will will never achieve what what is important for them to, to do in their life. I mean, for example, If a a client or if an individual has had a parent who is denigrating them all the time and it happens too often, um, all their life, they either serve that message through self-sabotage and avoidance or they're caught in overcompensation. I have to prove myself against that, you see. Um, When we have a powerful message to us and it can come to us from cultural forms like racism, sexism, et cetera, like that, it can come out of the family of origin or specific events in our social setting. I have three choices. I can obey that um, and serve it and that's what produces repetition. Remember that saying, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. That's what leads to these self-destructive patterns. Secondly, I'm going to run from it, get as far away as I can. I call that the Seattle solution unless the person lives in Seattle and they will call it the Miami solution. It's like, let me just get away from mom and dad. You know, I'll be anything but like my mother. I won't live my father's life. Well, I'm still being defined by the other rather than what one's expression from within. Or thirdly, we're out there trying to fix it in some way. <clears throat> a life of distraction. A, a, a life of busyness. Don't look back. Something might be gaming, gaining, as Satchel page once said. Um, or if you're really troubled, you become a therapist and work with other people who have that problem, you see. <laughs> because often in the um, sort of psychic architecture of professional caregivers of like clergy and nurses and physicians and psychotherapists, social workers, so forth, <clears throat> is they were often a very sensitive child who felt the disorders of their family mm-hmm. and got identified with trying to sort of provide that homeostasis. And of course, they can't fix mom and dad but they get very locked into that um, mode of adapting their own soul's agenda to that. And so I would go so far as to say that half of people in the helping professions shouldn't be there um, because they're pushed there by that dynamic and half should be because that's their calling. And there's virtually no effort, unfortunately, in the training of professional caregivers to really sort through that and examine that to sort out that motive. And that's one reason there's so much burnout and there's so much uh, distress that goes on among professional caregivers. Because once again, they're sacrificing their own journey to sort of take care of someone else. And it's not even a choice, it's a kind of an iron compulsion given the circumstances of their birth. One of the uh, chapters I have in the new book, Prisms, which is coming up, um, is on the um, archetype of the wounded healer. And yeah,
1: that's what I was bringing to mind. I was going to ask you about Chiron and the wounded healer, so please. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and, and the wounded healer, I mean, and that's in all of us, even if you're not in the overt healing uh, professions, there's a part in us that's always trying to fix the other, because if they're there for, you know, if they're okay, then A, we can relax, and maybe they can be there for us in a better way. You know, a lot of children get locked into that. So even if they're not a professional caregiver, maybe they program computers or whatever they're doing, they're, they're, they're still caught in that old need to fix the other. And I can say as a therapist, we never fix anybody else. We can help work with the issues. We can identify some of the stuck places. We can we can deal with some of the compelling fears, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, it's a self-healing process. So you can see under normal circumstances in most people, there's some part that is trying to fix the other and we can't do that. Now, many a relationship, as we know, an intimate relationship, a loving relationship is, is founded on this principle that if I can get you fixed all right, then you'll be there as that genuinely warm and reciprocal person that I'd like to spend my life with, you see, mm-hmm. well, it does seldom, does that work very well? Um, because we can't fix the other, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I'm just kind of like, you know, I have to, I have to digest your books. I can only read a chapter at a time and I'm finding talking to you. I actually want to leave space to digest, but I realize that uh, mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. conducting an interview here. so I have to kind of snap myself out.
2: <laughs> well, you know, that's funny because i've I've I write short books. and mm, thank God. <laughs> because these things are so concentrated for me. And many people have said, I sometimes can just read a paragraph at a time or a a page, and then I have to stop and think about it. Well, you know, that's wonderful. Do stop and think about it. (laughs) If this doesn't help you make sense of your life, don't bother. Go, Go find something that does. If it happens to speak to your life, here's a total stranger describing things that may cast light on your relationships or how you keep shooting yourself in the foot. If that's the case, why take it very seriously. You might you might learn something from that. And even if it's one sentence from a book, that can be life-changing. I've certainly experienced that myself.
1: Yeah. You mentioned healing, and it's a term that gets
2: thrown around a lot.
1: And Mm -hmm. I wonder from your perspective, what does it mean to heal?
2: Well, I don't think it's for all time. I think it's a, an ongoing process because <clears throat> the world doesn't stop. And every day there are new demands. I mean, if we, let's just fantasize, we go off and live a monastic existence somewhere and get away with from something. Well, That's a, that's a fantasy of mine. Well, I think for a lot of us, yes. <laughs> On the other hand, it's precisely the challenges that come at us that allow us to grow and develop in ways we wouldn't otherwise.
1: Yeah.
2: You can put it this way, and I, I think there's a profound truth to this. He said, every once in a while, we really need to get away from the hubbub and sort of go up on the mountaintop. He said, that's the only way to get back in touch with yourself. But on the other hand, if you stay up there too long, you'll start listening to ghosts. Mm. One complex will be talking to another. You get caught in a looping um, um, trap there because the problem with complexes, and we all have them, complexes are the clusters of energy that we carry within us, our stories and so forth.
1: Yeah. Well, I like that because people use the word trigger a lot. And so what I Mm -hmm. think of complexes as it's the kind of the explosive material Behind the trigger or the thing that gets triggered uh-huh. by the situation or person. But the complex is all of, like you said, that bundle of energy just waiting uh-huh. to be uh, sure. released.
2: Sure. sure. Well, just a little sidebar here on complex. It's a neutral word, but some of them are positive, like you look left and right as you cross the street. That's very helpful, historic response to, to stresses and stimuli in your life. If you don't do that, the car runs over you. Yeah. But many times we ask ourselves, why did I get so upset yesterday? Why was I angry at that person? And why did I drive so aggressively or something like that? And then you have to say, well, because for time there, I was, something had been triggered in me that had the capacity to rise up, take over my ego structure and own me for a while, possess me. The ancients recognize this by saying, count 20 before you say anything. Well, 20 is not long enough. But if you hold your response off, you realize after a while that energy dissipates and you don't have that much emotion in it. Or the person says, uh, write the letter, but don't send it for a few days. And then you say, well, you know, I don't want to put it that way. And I'm not as upset or I actually see it differently now because they recognize that times people became, quote, possessed. And what are they possessed by? They're possessed by archaic stories, things that happened to them, scripts, and so forth. And the problem with the complex is it has no imagination. It's only going to repeat Hmm. the same tape that was there, a tape from our early days, usually. So there's something often infantilizing about that. And it's going to say the same old, same old. That's why we have to pay attention to the autonomy of the psyche the dreams don't come from that place the symptoms don't come from that place the feeling function doesn't come from that place but the tapes you know are are often our stories and i put stories in quotes trying to make sense of what the world's about i was talking to someone earlier today who was talking about how you know his his uh, son whom he loves deeply always believed at some level he had to become his father his father had a particularly notable life out there, and his son never could do that, but he's devoting his entire life to do that. And now, with parts of his life in shambles, he continues. He's, he's had to convert that into feeling superior to that father, which is a strange reaction, but it's sort of like it's the only way to account for his failure, so to speak. Well, the mistake was he was never here to be his father. He was here to be himself. You see, and that was an early belief the child adopted for reasons we don't fully know. But it was a, a, a belief that has dominated his life. He's now, the, the child is now, you know, fully mature, you know, physically, but is still owned by the story of the past, which is true for most of us a good part of the time. Hmm. And in the course of any 24 hours, I can't tell you how much time a person is conscious. I've often said, well, if you step in the shower in the morning, it's too hot or too cold. You you make the adjustment to the the water temperature. At that moment, your ego's in conscious relationship to the outer world.
1: Yeah, it's an appropriate response of the ego to the situation at
2: hand. Absolutely. We need an ego to deal with the conditions of the world around us. On the other hand, the ego is often a captive state. It's often under the influence of of the (laughs) unconscious material. I've often joked with people, I said, you know, if a state trooper, you know, stops you when you go home from this session or this meeting that we're having or whatever, just tell me, it's okay, officer, I'm under the influence of a complex, you know, so write a DUI for you. But the truth is, we drive most of the time under the influence of a psychological complex, some of which we know about, but much of which we don't.
1: It's funny that you uh talk about it as being under the influence. I often think about it that way too uh because people say, you know, I wasn't in my right mind or I was out of my mm-hmm. head. I didn't know what I was doing. It's like I blacked mm-hmm. out. So I came up with this little acronym to for people to refer to when they're under the influence, when they're triggered. So mm-hmm. I call it sober response. So it's stop, mm-hmm. observe, breathe, <laughs> evaluate, yeah. and then respond. <laughs>
2: That's, no, that's exactly right. Ironically, I used the word "sober" twice, and it's not a word I use very often. But I think I used it twice earlier today, and it just came to me. So I guess it was setting you up there for that uh, that usage. That's wonderful.
1: Now, would that be a synchronicity?
2: I guess it would.
1: Yep. <laughs> well, I'm glad you talk about healing as uh, this ongoing process that there is no endpoint of being healed or fully integrated, because. Often when people come to work with me, whether it's uh, learning a yoga practice or coming for some uh, counseling, they come with this fantasy that if they do enough yoga, do enough psychedelics or do enough therapy, that at some point they'll be free of conflict and the emotional triggers that are causing so much turmoil in their life, right? And so all I can tell them that... (laughs) From where I stand now, at age forty-six, having been doing this work for some time, mm-hmm. those things are never fully gone, right? But it's like, with more consciousness, it gives me a greater sense of personal freedom, mm-hmm. uh, compassion for myself and for others, and like you mentioned earlier, it gives my, it puts my suffering in a more meaningful context, right? That's right, and. Um, For you, now 80 years old, you've been an analyst for 40 years, and so I imagine you've been living an examined life for quite a lot longer. What do you think? If we do enough work, do our triggers eventually go away?
2: No, no, we don't. First of all, we're historic creatures. Everything we've ever experienced is still contained within us. It's in our neurology, And it's in the sort of the the storehouse of emotional uh, imagery that can be triggered at any given time. This is why people could, let's say, have a dream about their third grade teacher they haven't seen in 50 years. You think, how could she be here? And yet there it is. She's living day because that's there's no time or space in the psyche per se. And Jung said quite rightly, I think he said, we don't solve these problems, but we can outgrow them. That's the point. Hmm. Many times people have said, you know, we, we've talked about this. I thought I was beyond it. And yesterday I found myself on the phone talking to my mother and I started screaming at this poor little old lady. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed and I thought I was beyond it. Well, look, you always have that history at work with you. What, what, why should we be surprised that it got triggered yesterday? Because you carry that with you. The difference is today you recognize it sooner you reduce the amount of damage that it does, you climb out of it sooner. The moment you think, I'm in a complex here, you're already beginning to step out of it, if you can even think that.
1: Right, the recognition, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and there are certain ways we can get a sense of that because I can't talk about the unconscious directly by definition, it's unconscious. But right. <laughs> if, if you feel certain places in your body that routinely seize up or, you know, for somebody it's sweating palms or constricted throat or shaking extremities or whatever, a tightness in the chest, um, you're in a complex. Just know it, you're in a complex. So at least you're, you, you have a clue. Mm -hmm. Secondly, where there's a rush of energy. Um, The problem is when you're in a complex and it's operating unconsciously, you think the amount of energy is appropriate to the situation. I'm not yelling at you. You see, when you've got a tape of that, you'd realize that guy's yelling, you know, because at the moment it feels appropriate, but the amount of energy discharging is in excess of the requirement of the situation. So when you feel that huge rush coming up, that's, A sign that while the situation here may be problematic, 10% of this emotion is generated by that outer objective issue. 90% of this is coming from your history. It's in the basement, just waiting to be tapped. Hmm. And and, and thirdly, when, when you realize that a complex is, in a sense, an alternative lens through which you see the world, and you're, when we're in a complex, our view of the other or the situation is literally distorted. We see what the lens allows us to see, what it's not—not not what it's really about. And that's why, wherever we can buy time to reflect on something, to say, "Let me get back to you on that," rather than we. Re- I mean, so often the phone rings. Will you be on this committee? Okay. Then you hang up and you say, "Why did I do that?" Mm-hmm. You know. Maybe a day later, you say, I can't, I don't have the time to work on that. You know, what took over there? There was an old, old archaic energy that says, well, you really want the other person to like you. You really don't want to get in trouble with them. Um, You know, you don't want to be out there on the end of this, you know, limb by yourself. I mean, those archaic voices that are so endemic to childhood, just rose up and made a, a choice for you here in the 20, 21st century, you know? And it happens to all of us because we carry that history. Mm-hmm. And over time, we begin to recognize, well, we, we have certain triggers that will cause complexes. You know, if a person's going to take an exam or they have to do a public speaking thing or something like that, they're bound to have complex material activated. You know, I'm a card-carrying introvert, so public events are not normal for me or easy. But I always remind myself, this isn't about you. Forget about you. People have their own problems and stuff in life. You know, they're trying to figure out their path. If you've learned anything along the way, that's what we're here for. Why not share that? And you see, then you're back serving what you're supposed to do. Let life be the vehicle that flows through you, you know, or you be the vehicle for the life that wants to throw th- flow through you. But, um, you know, <laughs> so many times people just seize up and are caught in that, that complex. The, the natural fears of the child, does the other person like me? Am I going to get in trouble here? Will I be abandoned? Will I be punished? Mm-hmm. Uh, will I be alone? Those things are terrors to a child. And, you know, le- years later, they keep people stuck in terrible relationships. They keep people afraid to change their jobs or careers or their geography. They, they, they keep people from the, the risk that life asks of us. And you realize, again, how much of our life is being governed by the past? And if you don't know that, and if you don't at least begin to reflect on that, you're just going to remain a creature of the past. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully
1: that's comforting to people to hear that those um, tapes are always with us. We we could try to bury them out in the desert somewhere, but <laughs> mm-hmm. they're always there. They're going to be unearthed at some point, right? So That's right. Um, best to be conscious of them, to be aware of the indicators that an old complex has been triggered. And Mm -hmm. would you say maybe, you know, I love what John Lee says about this, like when you're emotionally triggered is you got to take some time to grow yourself back up. And that might mean a walk around the lake or something, right? Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. would you say that that's maybe the best advice is just to give yourself some time?
2: When you can, the problem is life comes at you like this, Yeah. And you're often not given that time, you're in it. That's why I say you have to learn to forgive yourself by having fallen into a complex. That's stimulus response, just like that. But on the other hand, whenever you can buy time or when you recognize that's what it was, then I'm already, again, reducing the damage and so forth. So for example, there've been studies since the 1980s that decisions are made in our unconscious before we even consciously know we have to make a decision. Now, that's a little scary. Mm. It's protective, but scary. So, for example, if a baseball is headed towards my head, I start reacting even before I consciously say duck like this and step aside. Or I was reading recently that if we're very thirsty and you drink a glass of water, um, you automatically begin to feel better. But that water will not have been distributed to your circulatory system for twenty minutes, so your brain has already trolled your body. You know the complex of the natural system saying relief is on the way. Relief's on its way, yeah, (laughs) yeah. The seventh cavalry is coming, and it's fascinating how much of our life is on automatic pilot. Yeah, and you put that together physiologically with how much of our life is unconscious, and the window of consciousness gets smaller and smaller. You know. And, you know, (laughs) then you have to say, well, I have to work pretty hard to keep that window open, don't I? Mm. And there are certain basic questions you start asking of a certain behavior or a certain decision or a certain stuck place. Well, where have I been here before? You know, this is not occurring just in isolation. I've been in situations which analogously remind me of the risk or the danger or whatever the circumstance is here or when I make a decision, what is that in service to inside of me, really? I have to add really, because you can't necessarily trust the first response, mm. because my first response will be the old protection. It'll be my codependence. It will be my uh, you know desire not to feel isolated. It will it will be my fear of closeness or whatever it is that's come up. That made decision for me. And that's not coming from my depths or what is really uh, coming from my own integrity. Mm.
1: Yeah. I can usually, I can usually tell um, the speed at which that response comes from someone, you know, it's like, well, why are you still in this relationship? Well, because I love her. Well, mm. are you so sure? Let's just take a little time and dig in. Right. That's right. That's are right. you afraid of being alone? Like what's, what's behind that, that mm-hmm. reflexive response, right?
2: Yes, Exactly. And frankly, um, having asked that question, it takes time to unpack that, you know, that's why this work is um, requires patience and um, a certain diligence, a certain discipline um, and, and a willingness to face what our own psyche wants us to face. And if not, we're living a fugitive life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you quoted Rilke saying that we can't be counseled. We have to find the answers. So maybe our job is just to help guide people toward that inner exploration, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, people may think, well, the therapist, like a, a car mechanic, when I take my car in, I don't know what the problem is. I'm counting on that person's expertise and knowledge to fix the problem. Well, people transfer that to therapists, of course, and people in that kind of position. And it's understandable, on the other hand, um, what this is really about. And, of course, we do learn certain things about, the, you know, the mechanisms of complexity yeah. and resistance and so forth. But, uh, but that aside, it's more about sitting there, holding it and hearing that story and beginning to ask questions about it that, in a sense, invites that person to look at it from different perspectives. Sometimes the best thing we can do is ask a question that requires a person to really reflect on what what does that really mean? The example you just said, well, what really is this love you're talking about? Can you start taking a little bit of that apart to see, what well, what do you really mean by that love?
1: Yeah, or even like some of those indicators you talked about. So, you know, is there energy in this relationship? Is there um, a positive feeling in Mm -hmm. the depths of your being you know like how do you feel when you're in relationship and when we examine it
2: that's right that's right and uh, you know this extends to jobs and so many other areas and friendships and and
1: all of these decisions we have to make with our life Mm -hmm. we have to make our life right Mm -hmm.
2: yeah affiliations with other bodies you know like uh religious institutions, social and political institutions. Is this a place where your psyche really wants you to be now rather than just staying in the same old, same old, you know,
1: Mm -hmm. it's time to wrap up, but I think we've given people a lot to work with there. Um, And I always like to offer some practical tips for people on how to deal Mm -hmm. with things. So I think we've done that. So I feel really good about that. Now, maybe just to end, um, We started our conversation talking about what's going on in the culture at large, and Mm -hmm. particularly, the, the turmoil that's happening in the U.S. And we feel the reverberations of that up here in Canada. And I know as far as the U.K. and elsewhere, right, everyone's kind of feeling what's going on in the U.S. right now. And it seems from like my perspective up here, a little removed, it seems like the collective shadow of the country is being exposed right now.
2: Mm I fully agree.
1: Are you hopeful that this is going to lead to a positive transformation? Um, Because from here, it looks like it could go either way at this point.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree. I think it can go either way. Um, You know, we all want to believe a certain image of ourselves as persons. We want to believe images of our countries and our affiliations, and all of these structures in our life have a shadow. And the shadow itself is not evil per se. It's those parts of ourselves that we prefer not to look at too carefully. Those parts that are contradictions to our professions of of virtue or value. Those parts of us that are um, contradicting our intentions or those parts that are asking more of us than we really want to address. So I, I think, um, you know, America done many major good things in the world. It's done some terrible things. You can't talk about a culture that has imported slavery. You can't talk about a culture that's uh, destroyed indigenous populations. You can't destroy. Uh, talk about a culture that has, um, you know, ravaged the environment and many other such matters, which I it's a long list, without saying there's a huge shadow here.
1: Yeah.
2: And so, you know, the biggest shadow here is is not about the history. The shadow, I think, is, is about the issues of change. To what degree? The changes that are occurring in the world are are going to happen regardless. They can't be held back. So you can, you can forestall them for a generation, you can forestall them for a certain political term, but they're going to happen regardless. Populations are changing, values are changing and so forth. The future belongs to those who can adapt to the change conditions, to those who are more flexible, to those who are more tolerant, to those who are more able to embrace the otherness of the other. And that becomes a shadow issue. The more insecure I am in myself, the less I'm able to deal with the otherness of the other, whether it's technological change on the one hand, or or social and racial and economic change on the other hand. And there's where the, the shadow is colliding in people's lives. And um, it's very much up for grabs. I, I don't think I will see it in my lifetime, what's left to me. But I think the future of this country is now being worked out and it does have a substantial uh, impact on the rest of the world, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that. I, I appreciate your perspective, and um, I'm glad I'm not alone in the, the unknowing, um, right. And just to finish, you know, I was really struck by a, a portion of a poem that you included at the very beginning of Living Between Worlds. So I went and looked it up. And um, I'd like to finish just by reading that whole poem, because like the way that you talked about the healing project, you know, I call it the the, the big project of integration, the one that's never mm-hmm. quite done. Um, the way that that's never done, and but there's a lot that we can do. We can expand our capacity to to hold difficult experience, uh, which which diffuses the the power of of the complex. Right, so there's things that we can do. We can continue to grow and expand ourselves so that we can better deal mm-hmm. with these things that are always going to be a part of us. And so this poem, I think, um, says something about that. And I love mm-hmm. the way that it says it. So it's uh, a poem called Romanesque Arches by Tomas uh, Transtrumer, I believe is how you pronounce his name, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it goes like this. Tourists have crowded into the half dark of the enormous Romanesque church, vault opening behind vault and no perspective. A few candle flames flickered. An angel whose face I couldn't see embraced me, and his whisper went all through my body. Don't be ashamed to be a human being. Be proud. Inside you, one vault after another opens endlessly. You'll never be complete, and that's as it should be. I just love that. When I read that, it, I feel greatly comforted by my discomfort.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And frankly, it, it's it's a summons to an endless journey, as long as we're still on above the ground and not below it. Your life gets more and more interesting the more you pay attention. And that I firmly believe. The, the project of your journey, Jung you put it, so succinctly, he said, it's, life's a short pause between two great mysteries. Well, and this pause is a mystery, too. I was going to say, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, so we, we have to see how that plays out in our relationships and in our, in our experience of our own journey. And, you know, as long as you have curiosity and imagination, you're fully alive. And that's, that's the nature of the human being, the animal who asks why and what does it mean. That's, that's who we are.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate you taking some time to do this. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by purchasing one of my yoga video courses or books. You can find links to everything at brianjames.ca Forward slash resources. Thanks so much for your support. Without listeners like you, independent creators like me couldn't do what we do. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine upon your face. Until the next time we meet on The Medicine Path.